Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. I want to start off today with a statement that I think you understand, realize it's going to be no new truth, and that is, the world is a mess. You agree? I don't know when I said that, whether you thought of the world in general or you thought of your world, because it could apply to either one, can't it? There are times, sometimes our personal worlds, our world is a mess. It's the nature of being in the world. You know, I I don't want to focus just on the negative because, you know, there's a lot of good in the world. The Bible makes it clear that when God created the world and everything he put in it, he created it good. In fact, it says he said that it was good. And when he got done, he said it was very good. And then, of course, sin came into the world, which brought evil and all the other stuff. But in spite of how the world has been twisted and distorted and all these things have happened, there's still a lot of good in the world. The thing is, is that we have to look for it and we don't hear much about it because good news does not sell. And so no matter what news outlet you choose to avail yourself of, chances are it's going to be mainly bad news talking about how our world is in such a mess. And I'm thankful for the good. If it wasn't for the good in this world, it'd be very difficult to live in this world. But there is a mess in our world. There's a lot of bad. In fact, we can go even a step further and say not just bad, but it's evil. We know that we have wrestled recently in history, and we think that, oh, it's just something we got to deal with. But it's been true ever since the very beginning when Cain killed his brother Abel. But we've had to wrestle with issues of unfairness and injustice and oppression and so many other things that are in this world. And I don't know about you, but it makes you wonder, what's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen in the future? There's a lot of different theories. There's a theory out there in the world that if we just try harder and get people better educated and share a little bit more and do a little bit more, this world will get better and better and better eventually. And technology is going to help us to do that because technology is going to make life better for everybody. And so one day this world, we can get to the place where this world is going to be a good place. We can eliminate all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, right. That idea has been around for a long time. And unfortunately, it seems like just the opposite is true. The more people are educated, the more technology we have, the more money that flows through the system, the the more that people try to do good, it seems like there's still so much evil and it seems to escalate. There's even a similar idea, similar theory kind of in the Christian realm, the idea being that, you know, God's good. God wants what's good. God sent Jesus to die for us. If we'll just preach the gospel and get that out there, people will get saved. It'll influence nations, and that'll change the world, and it's just going to get better and better and better. And there's some truth to that. I mean, it is true that God loves the world, and because of that, he sent Jesus to die on the cross that our sins could be forgiven. 
And wherever the gospel is preached and people respond in a positive way, it makes those individual lives much, much better. And communities and nations where the gospel spreads and God's spirit moves and a great number of people respond to the gospel, the, 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 the conditions in those areas, those communities, and even sometimes nations do improve. In fact, we pray for that, don't we? We pray that God sends revival to our church, to our community, to our nation. That's part of what we do in missions convention. We pray for God to send his spirit in a powerful way around the world that people would come to know Christ and it would change the world. Even when we think of individual events, we think of things like what's happening in the Ukraine. I would venture to say probably every single person in this room has been praying, God, make a difference. God changed things. God put an end to the evil. God put an end to the injustice. God put an end to the violence. Help those that are hurting. Make things better. And that is certainly appropriate for us to pray. But can I tell you that even the Christian version of this world's going to get better and better because the effect of the gospel is not on target? Because you see, the word of God makes it clear what's going to happen in the future. There's going to be good. There's going to be bad and evil. And there are going to be events in the world that would fall in either one of those categories and sometimes in between. And good and evil kind of ebb and flow. But ultimately, evil will continue to increase until it seems like this world is hopeless. But God's still in control. And God will bring it to an end. And he's going to renew the earth to what it once was when he created it. He's only waiting so that more people can come to know him. And because of that, we need to be actively involved in taking the gospel to the world. Even knowing that things are probably going to get worse and worse at some point. We, especially knowing that things are going to get worse and worse at some point. We need to take the gospel to our world. We need to send it to places we can't go. And there's a number of ways we can do that. Well, we've been focusing on missions all week long because we're in the midst of our missions convention for this year. And this year, the theme is He is Worthy. And whenever we have missions convention, we usually have a missionary on one Sunday and other events. And then on the other Sunday, I try to preach a message that has to do with the theme. And so that's what we're going to be taking a look at today, this theme of He is Worthy. And the idea is, what is the fact that He, and and most of you probably figure this out, the He being Jesus Christ... How does the fact that Jesus Christ is worthy, and and what is he worthy of, by the way, how does the fact that he is worthy of whatever impact missions? What does it have to do with missions? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5. The key focus verse is verse 9, but we're going to read the whole chapter. It's a short one. But let me give you a little bit of background to Revelation. People are intrigued by the book of Revelation. How many of you have ever ever read the book of Revelation? Yeah. How many of you understand the book of Revelation? Oh, I got some hands that are up. Good. I'd like you to explain it to me. You say, well, you know, maybe a general understanding of it. The book of Revelation, in case you're not familiar with it, though most of you are familiar with it, the book of Revelation is basically a series of visions that Jesus gave to John the Apostle that has to do with what was going to be happening throughout history, leading up to the end of the world. And it's full of symbolism. It's full of Old Testament references. It's full of these visual pictures 
and they're very hard to understand. I can tell you that if you think you've got it all figured out, you probably have only heard one aspect of the information that's out there because, you see, there's been debate through the centuries ever since God gave the visions to John as to exactly what everything means and what it's referring to and when it's referring to. We come from a tradition that I happen to be part of that believes that most of what you have in Revelation is stuff that's still going to take place in the future. But can I tell you that there's been teaching from all the way back after God gave the Revelation to John that most of everything in Revelation took place in the Roman Empire. Not all of it because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And then there are those that say, well, it's been taking place all through. And so it can get very confusing. But can I tell you this? Even though there may be some honest debate and um, discussion about exactly what specific things mean in the book of Revelation, all kind of stuff, the main focuses, the main themes of Revelation are very, very clear. And the main themes of Revelation are this. There is good in the world. There is evil in the world. God is behind the good. We have an enemy that is trying to destroy God's work and God's people. And it will get worse. But God is in control. And his people win. They triumph. They conquer. They overcome. But in the midst of the battle, we've got to hold on to those truths. As you read through Revelation, I want to encourage you, as you may wrestle with exactly what it means, keep those ideas in mind. But I want you to notice something else. There are a number of the, of the visions that, ta- that uh, show events that are happening on the earth and, and all that kind of stuff and God's response from heaven. But there's a couple of visions, one of them being what we're going to look at today, that actually you see a scene in heaven. And the thing that I find very interesting Chapters 4, 5, and 7 are all scenes from heaven. Is when you see a vision of a scene from heaven, there's no discord. There's no evil. There's no um, concern as far as what are we going to do? There's only confidence. God's on the throne. God's in control. There's nothing that his enemy can do on earth that's going to throw his plans off course. He will triumph. The gospel will triumph. God's people will triumph. It may get tough, but we just have to hold on. That's the theme. That's the theme. So when you see these visions in heaven, again, I said chapter 4, chapter 5, which we're getting ready to read, and then chapter 7, we see God and Jesus. We see all these angels. We have this group of people called the 24 elders. And a lot of this, what are these 24 elders? Many, most people believe it stands for, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which basically means all of God's people of all of God's time are represented by. Anyway, you can get into all kinds of interesting discussion. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you ever teach on Revelation? It would take us forever to delve into all the possible things. We do teach and preach on the main themes. And then we also see in these pictures of heaven great multitudes of people from all throughout history and from all around the world. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 5. And I'm going to read through the entire chapter. Again, it's a shorter one and kind of explain a couple things as we go along. And then we're going to look at that main focus in verse 9, okay? In chapter 4, we have a vision of heaven. It shows God on the throne, God in control. And in chapter 5, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, talking about God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? Most Bible scholars believe that what this scroll is 
is it's an account. It's a, it's a revelation of God's plan for history. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, these are not the kind of seals you see at SeaWorld. These are daubs of wax that are placed either on the edge of the paper or on a, 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 a twine or whatever that's wrapped around it, and it's sealed. And the only way you can open it up is to break that seal. And it seems to indicate there's these seven seals, but it's like this roll is rolled up, and it's rolled up part of the way, then there's one seal, and it's rolled up some more than another seal, then another, so that as you would open this up, you would break one seal, and then you'd unroll it, and you'd see a little bit of the picture. Then you'd break a second seal, and you'd unroll it, and see a little bit more of the picture, and then you go on and on, and then Revelation goes on to talk about these seven seals, that as each seal is broken, part of God's plan is initiated, and it's carried out. So this this scroll is not just a revelation of God's plan for history, but it's the means by which he's going to carry out his plan. And it ends with victory. So someone has got to open this scroll to reveal what God has planned and to set things into motion. So it says there's this scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth was, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John sees this vision. He's anticipating what's God going to do. God's got a plan. God's got, and, and he, and he says, there's the scroll. And they're looking for someone to open it. And the angel says, there is no one who's worthy to open the scroll. And John is weeping. How will we know what God's plan is? And even more importantly, how will God's plans be accomplished? There's no one worthy to open the scroll. And then it goes on in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. But that's symbolism for Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah pictures out of the Old Testament that Judah was, was compared to a lion and a lion's whelp and had strength and victory and, and, uh, said of the, uh, of the shoot, the root of David, you know, David was a descendant of Judah and major king and God had promised David that one of your sons, one of your descendants would always be king and Jesus was the fulfillment of that and of course he got the victory, he conquered on the cross, we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but he says he's conquered so he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. He's the one that can reveal what God's getting ready to do and to put it into action. So John begins looking around. He's looking for a lion. In verse 7, it says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You can see some of the symbolism there, and I'm not going to dig deeply into the symbolism, but seven is the number of perfection. Horns in the Bible symbolize power and strength. So it's saying that this lamb has perfect and complete power and strength. Eyes are symbolic of knowledge and understanding. So saying this lamb also has complete and perfect knowledge and understanding. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John's looking for a lion. They said, a lion's coming. Here's a lamb. Again, this is all symbolism. It's all double meaning type stuff. But we see here pictured Jesus 
and his role throughout history as the conquering king, but the sacrificial servant. Jesus came to be the Lamb of God. John proclaimed that. So we've been studying our way through the Gospel of Luke. John said the Lamb of God is coming. They were looking for the conquering king. The Jewish people, this is the the perfect description of the Jewish Messiah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Root of David, shoot of David, however you want to put it. It's mentioned both ways in Scripture. It's going to conquer. But yet first he had to come as the sacrificial lamb to die for the sins of the world. He's both. He's both. We go on now in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the four living creatures, by the way, are cherubim around the throne of God. I already mentioned the 24 elders. They fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saint. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. That word for myriad means a number much higher than anybody can count. That's literally what it means. And so it says, you know what, myriads of myriads, much higher, multiplied by much higher than anybody can count. That's how many angels there are. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So what is this saying? He is worthy. We go back to verse nine, the the key there. Worthy are you. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and open it. In other words, Jesus, you conquered through your death. You are worthy to reveal God's plans and to set them into motion. But not only that, as we go on to the other expressions, we see that Jesus is worthy of all honor, praise, and worship. There's three accounts of songs here. First one is by the people, and then all the angels, and then all of creation are worshiping Jesus. You see, because in heaven, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. We look at verses 9 and 10. That's the focus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Talking about his death on the cross. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's talking about people who were sold into slavery and someone came along and set them free. Every human being sold into slavery to sin. Nothing at all we can do about it, but Jesus paid the price on the cross from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Not only did Jesus pay the price that the servants, the slaves could be redeemed, but he didn't just say, okay, you're set free now, go live your life. It says that he redeemed them and he made them kings and queens and princes and princesses. They're sons and daughters with complete access to God and the right to rule and reign on earth throughout eternity. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. But again, it raises the question, what does this have to do with missions? Missions. Why did our 
denomination. Choose this as our mission's theme for this year. He is worthy. The truth is wonderful. Jesus died for us. He's saved us. He's made it possible for us to be sons and daughters of God. We can have complete and full access to him and we'll rule and reign for all eternity in his kingdom and all the evil's going to be. That's wonderful. But what does that have to do with missions? And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time talking about. It says here, and it also mentions in chapter 7, the other vision of heaven, that here in heaven... We have people from every tribe and language and people and nation. How did they get there? When Jesus came to earth, did he go all through the world? After he died and was buried and rose again, did he travel around the world to tell everybody what he did? No. So how did these people from all over the world get into heaven? It's because after Jesus did what he did, he says, I've done my part. And he told his followers, now you have a part to play. You see, Jesus told his disciples at least five times that missions was his plan for them. And I find it very interesting, and I believe it was deliberate on God's part that every single one of the four gospels in the book of Acts talks about a specific time when Jesus told his disciples this. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In Mark 16, 15, he told his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In Luke 24, 46 and 47, he says, thus it is written, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. In John 20, 21, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So the disciples did that. They left. They went. Wherever God would go, They shared the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that paid the price for the sins and gave people the opportunity to respond to that, to believe that truth, to put their trust in Jesus and thus be saved from their sins. And they took the gospel all over their world. And the people that they spoke to began to take that gospel to the people around them in their world. And God called others to leave where they were. Many of them, most of them, just shared the gospel right where they were. But there were individuals like the original disciples that God called to go to other places far away from home to share that good news. And it's happened for over 2,000 years. That's what missions is all about. So that's how this passage relates to missions. All these people from all over the world are going to make it to heaven, but it's only because once Jesus did what he was to do, his followers choose to do what they're called to do. But can I tell you, the job's not over yet. And the call that Jesus gave to his followers then still extends to us today that we need to take this good news to the world around us. He will call some of us to leave and go somewhere else. I mean, he did that in a partial way for me and my wife. We left home to become pastors far away from home. He calls others to go and be missionaries 
to some other place far away from home, perhaps. But he calls all of us to share the good news. So we need to be involved. I want to answer two questions today, and probably neither of these questions or their answers are a surprise to you. But I want to answer two questions today. Why should I be involved in missions? And how should I be involved? Why should I? Why should you? Say, Pastor, I know you should be involved in missions. You're a pastor. Our elders and deacons need to be involved in missions too. They're in leadership. My Sunday school teacher should be involved in missions. You know, But you know what? God calls each and every one of us to be involved in missions. So why should I be involved in missions? The first thing is that missions is important to God. And if missions is important to God, it should be important to us. How do we know that missions is important to God? Well, the Bible makes it very, very clear that God wants a relationship, a personal relationship with everyone. But the only way that can happen is if they can hear the good news and respond to it. You know, sometimes we're, we're talking about how the world's such a mess and, and God's allowing it to stay a mess and there's ebbs and flows of good and evil, victory and defeat, all that kind of stuff. Why doesn't God just put an end to it? And he's going to. But why is he waiting so long? It's been 2,000 years about since Jesus came here. Why? The answer is very clear in God's word in 2 Peter 3.9. We've talked about this before. In the context of that verse, Peter's responding to people who's saying, yeah, right, God's going to put an end to this. Jesus is coming back, right? It's been so long since he said that nothing's happened. And this is Peter's response. It's God's response through Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This verse tells us that God specifically has been waiting 2,000 years and will continue to wait until he says enough's enough because there are more people that he wants a relationship with that are not in relationship with him right now. Can I tell you in a very real way, God was waiting for me until 52 years ago when I surrendered my life to Christ. God was waiting for you until that moment in time whenever it was that you surrendered your life to Christ and responded to the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins. You can be right with God. And for those of you that may be here today or you may be watching online that you don't have a relationship with God by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, God is waiting for you. But he's not going to wait forever. So we know that missions is important to God because he wants a relationship, a personal with everyone. You know, you know, we talk about is God's will always done? Well, his ultimate will, his ultimate purpose cannot be sidetracked. It cannot be defeated. It will be accomplished. But can I tell you that there are certain things that God wants that won't happen? One of them being this. God wants a relationship with everyone. But it won't happen because he leaves that choice up to each individual. And there are those who choose not to have a relationship with him. But can I tell you, that's why missions is so important to God, because he wants everyone to hear the good news, to respond, to at least have the opportunity. But you know, it wasn't just something he wanted. It's not just a desire. He did something about it. He paid a great price by sending his son to die. 
You know, you can tell how important something is to someone by the price they're willing to pay for it. Have you ever seen somebody else that bought a new house or a new car or a boat or something else like, and then they tell you about how much they paid for it. It's like, oh man, I wouldn't have paid that for that. Maybe even something so like a computer. There's no way. But they did, didn't they? Why? Because it was important to them. And there's probably things that you've bought that other people looks like, <laughs> yeah, I would never have paid that for that. But you bought it anyway because it was important to you. I was just talking to somebody this last week. I think I remember who it was. I won't say their name. And we were talking about the fact that God gave his son so that people in the world could be saved from their sins. And that person was a lady and she was a mother. She says, I can't even imagine giving my son for anybody, much less the world. God gave his son. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God paid a big price. And that leads to the second reason we know that missions is important to God is because Jesus died for the sins of the world. Right here in our text, verse 9, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Talking about eternal spiritual death, separation from God. Peter, preaching in the house of Cornelius in Acts 10.43, says everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We've referred to it in passing already this morning several times, but what it comes down to is the fact that sin entered this world and as a result of sin that originally entered into this world in the Garden of Eden, every single human being that has ever been born except for Jesus, because he was only part, well, he was fully human, but he was fully God. Every single human being has a sinful human nature. We are all drawn to sin. We are all sinners. And the Bible says that we have all sinned and are separated from God. And the wages of our sin is death, not just physical death. Sin brought physical death into the world, but spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. But that verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To, to simplify it, Jesus came. God himself became human. 100% God, 100% human. Specifically to live the life that we could not live and to die a death that he did not deserve to pay the price for our sins. Without getting deeply into theology, God took his death and payment for our sins. And we can be forgiven and have a relationship with God that will last for all eternity. We don't have to suffer the consequences of our sins throughout eternity if we put our trust in what Jesus did for us. Because, you see, it's a gift. It didn't, isn't like Jesus died on the cross and so, boom, everybody's good. The opportunity's there. The provision is there. But we have to accept that gift. We have to come to God and say, God, I am a sinner. I'm so sorry for that. I ask that you forgive me, not because I can be, <laughs> be good or can earn it or deserve it, but because Jesus died for me. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Change me. Help me to live for you. That's all it takes to receive the gift. If you're here today and you've never done that, I challenge you and encourage you to do that. If you're watching online and you've not done that, I challenge you, I encourage you to do that. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He paid that great price. That's why we know missions is important to God. And the third reason we know missions is important to God is that Jesus told his disciples this mission was their greatest priority. All the verses I already read to kind of introduce this whole thing. 
When he says, I've done my part, now go and do yours. Go tell the world. Go tell the world. So missions is important to God. And if it's important to God, and he says it should be important to us, then it should be important to us. But can I tell you another reason why we, why I should be involved in missions, not just because it's important to God, but, sorry, I lost my place here. Another truth in God's word that we do not like, but it's there. Without salvation through Christ, people will be forever separated from God. If people do not hear the message and respond to the message and accept the gift that is freely offered, they will be eternally forever separated from God. I mentioned in our passage today in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 7, it talks about this great multitude around the throne, but this multitude doesn't encompass every single person that's ever lived in history. In fact, later in Revelation, in chapter 20, verses 12 and 15, it talks about when God finally does shut down the way things are going right now to recreate and renew everything to go into eternity, that in between there's a judgment. And it says in Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a lake of fire that God created, but can I tell you that God did not create the lake of fire for people. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 25, 41, that this eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. But unfortunately, people will end up there because they choose to ignore what God did to keep them from going there. You know, I said it very politely a moment ago. I said, without salvation through Christ, people will be forever separated from God. But I just want to make it even clearer and more, maybe more blunt. The clear teaching of Scripture is every person who dies without accepting God's provision for salvation will go to hell. We don't like that. I don't like it. But just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. Can I tell you that God doesn't like it? God doesn't like it even more than we don't like it. And some of you say, well, why doesn't he do something about it? He did. He sent Jesus to die on the cross that anyone who would turn to him could have their sins forgiven. And not only that, but he's had an army of millions upon millions upon millions of people all through history to take that message to the world. And we're part of that army in today's day and age. I hate the truth of that statement. Acts 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. Peter's preaching again, and he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. John 14, 6. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, people, they don't like the idea of without the gospel and responding they're going to go to hell but surely there must be other ways that God has made for people to get to heaven but Jesus said no there isn't I am the way the truth and the life no one can come to the father except through me each person must make their own decision but we must get the message out there 
It raises important questions we can't dig deeply into. How can a loving God send people to hell? Can I tell you, a loving God does not send people to hell. A loving God does did everything he could to make it possible people don't have to go to hell. People go to hell because they choose to reject his gift of salvation. He already paid the ultimate price. If I could illustrate it this way, can you imagine... Somebody's starving to death, sitting on the sidewalk outside a restaurant that's open 24 hours a day and offers free meals to anybody that would come inside. You talk to the person, why are you sitting out here starving to death? You just got to go in. I don't like what they're serving. I don't like that I have to go to this restaurant. I want something different to eat. Sounds so ludicrous. I don't want to have to get up from where I'm at. All the reasons and excuses why people reject Christ and what he's done. Can I tell you that in light of eternity, they're just as ludicrous. They're just as ludicrous. And the third thing about why I should be involved in missions, it's important to God and without salvation, people are going to go to hell. But there are many who still need Jesus. It's estimated that in our world, and I just looked this up yesterday to try to get a current figure, that right now there are 7.9 billion people rounded off, by the way. They didn't count them all. 7.9, almost 8 billion people in the world. And it's estimated that about half the world has not yet heard the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that half the world has not said yes to Jesus. I'm saying half the world has not yet heard the message. It's estimated that tens of thousands of people die without Christ every day. We've got to get the message out there. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about these facts, it can seem very, very overwhelming. It can. What difference can we make? What difference can I make? Well, the good news is that God doesn't expect you to change the whole world. But he does expect you, and he expects me to do what I can in my world. So that leads to the second question, and that is, how should I be involved in missions? And again, you're not going to hear anything surprising here unless this is your first time here and you've never heard somebody else talk about it, because we talk about this all the time. A very significant way that you can be involved in missions, and every single one of you can be, is to pray. To pray for missions, to pray that God will raise up missionaries to go into the world to pray that God will send people out, to pray for the missionaries that have gone. That's why we emphasize every single month. The first Sunday month is missions focus, and we do different things to bring awareness of missions to the forefront of our minds. But almost every single time I wrap it up by saying there's three things you need to do. You need to pray. That's the first thing I mention. It's one of the reasons in our week and a half of missions convention, we have two prayer meetings we have the missions prayer breakfast when we gather together and we pray for all of our missionaries, all pictures all on the wall. Then on the Wednesday night, we pray for the regions of the world and sometimes for the missionaries in there too, but because prayer makes a difference. God's word makes it clear. You know, I don't understand all that. You know, God can do whatever he wants, but he has so set things up in this world that when we pray, when we talk to him about things, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. And can I tell you something that may convict you, but that's okay, I'll leave that between you and God. How you pray for missionaries, I'm sorry, how you pray for missions, which includes missionaries, shows how important missions is to you. So I challenge you, pray. 
We make resources available to you. There's resources on the table in the lobby unless they've all been taken because we're in the Middle Missions Commission, but we'll get them restocked about how to pray for missionaries. And, and uh, Nathel, our secretary, puts out a booklet that has all the current prayer requests for missionaries that we have on the field, the, the 60-something that we support. And you can take one of those and you can pray for them. I've, I've shared with you many times, that can seem overwhelming, 60-something. How do I? I just pray for one every day. This morning when I came into the office, one of the first things I did was to spend my time with God. I, I was reading His Word and I was praying and I called up my list. I've got my list on my, on my iPad and on my phone and on my computer and I just called up and said, and I got it marked. Who did I pray for yesterday? Okay, I'm praying for the next person on the list. And I prayed for the next person. It happened to be Bruce Page, one of our missionaries. And I prayed for him and I prayed for his family today and what God was doing in and through him. I'll throw another thing out there God laid on my heart a couple years ago that you could do if you want to too is I got a list of the top 50 nations in the world where Christians are persecuted and I pray for one of those every day too. There's a lot of different ways you can impact the world through prayer. Every single one of us can pray. I challenge you to pray. Second way you should be involved in missions is to give of your resources. To give of your resources. And can I again tell you that what you give shows how important missions is to you. Now, I'm not trying to tell you you need to go out and take a second mortgage and give it to missions. I'm just saying that if missions is important to you, if God's work in the world is important to you, if getting the message out, which is one of the primary responsibilities that God has given to us, is important to you, you will probably give of your resources to missions. It's one of the reasons we challenge you to make a faith promise every year. I always say whenever we have a missionary guest, we come to missions convention, even though we don't talk a lot about money in our church. And one of the reasons we don't have to is because you guys are so faithful to give to meet the needs right here at home. But even though we don't talk a lot about money in general, as far as give, 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 I don't ever hesitate to challenge you and myself to give generously and even sacrificially to missions. And I'm not going to stop either. But I also tell you, I'm not the one that's going to tell you what you're supposed to give. God can do that. Because he's the one you're going to give account to anyway about whether you were obedient to him or not. So I challenge you, if this is your church home, if you've not yet made a faith promise, that you consider doing that. Whether you do or not, give, give, give to missions. Give to missions. But can I tell you that praying and giving are the easy ways we can be involved in missions. The third way that we can all be involved in missions, and we should, is we need to tell others about Jesus. We need to be ready, willing, and able to share Jesus and his good, the good news of the gospel with the people around us as God prompts us, as God leads us, as God opens doors. But let me add to that because sometimes we're saying, well, I'm waiting for the prompting. I'm waiting for the leading. I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to kick me in the rear end. If that's what you're waiting for, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit kicks you in the rear end. (laughs) But how many of you know that you don't need a prompting and a leading and a kick in the rear end just to be obedient, right? Now, by that, I don't mean that you need to just go up to every person you see, grab them by the arm, say, you need to accept Jesus or you're going to hell. We need to pray for the opportunities. We need to pray for the open doors. We need to pray for the softness of their hearts. And can I tell that just like it was for you, it is for other people. Chances are the first time they hear that good news explained clearly, they may not do anything about it. I mean, how many of you, the first time you heard the good news, you immediately responded? It probably was something, maybe some of you, Probably was something you had to hear over and over and over again. You had to see it lived out in people's lives. You had to see that that person that led you to Christ actually lived it out. And it really did make a difference in their lives. It takes a while. It takes a process. And the Holy Spirit is working on their life. And sometimes we may share with somebody the good news and we don't see any difference. In fact, it may be we do see a difference. They get a little bit more hostile. 
They shut us down. If that's the case, may it not be because you have not shared the gospel well or because you were ugly or condemning or judgmental? I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. Well, again, at the risk of saying something that might convict you, but that's between you and God, is if you don't know, why don't you? Unless you just became a Christian, why don't you know how to share your faith with others? The Bible makes it very clear at the most basic level, all you got to do is tell people what Jesus did for you. All of us can do that. But why can't you take some time to learn some basic truths to share the gospel? I mean, we can learn whatever we need to have an occupation and to do well in our occupation. We can learn whatever we need to learn to fix a problem with our plumbing or with a computer or with whatever. We, I mean, anything that we really want to learn, we can learn. So why can't we learn how to share the gospel? Can I tell you, I really think that, because I've wrestled with all these things myself, I think they're all just excuses because we're afraid of being rejected. Please understand that people reject the gospel. They're not rejecting you per se. They're rejecting God and what he's done for them. But then again, we make it so much more difficult than it needs to be. And I just want to tell you that, you know, every, all on our ongoing basis, we preach sermons and we have teachings and stuff on sharing our faith. I started this year with two sermons on some basic things about sharing our faith. Come and see, go and tell. Those are the two messages I preached at the beginning of the year. But God's been laying it more on my, more on my heart that, you know, we need to spend a little bit more time each year talking about how we can share our faith and do it effectively. So be looking for more opportunities this year for sermons and Bible studies and training opportunities to learn how to share our faith. But as I said before, it can seem kind of overwhelming because after hearing a message like this, you may feel like, I feel so condemned. It's like, I'm not sharing Jesus with every single person I'm coming across. And can I tell you that that's probably not what God's going to have you do. Not every person you come across is ready for the message yet. But we can't use that as an excuse either. Well, I'm just waiting, just waiting. Stop just waiting. Say, God, who can I impact for you today? And not just with the message, but by loving them and caring about them and responding them into a, in a way that they would totally un, be unexpected because they treat you nasty and you're just going to love them right back. You know? By doing good, by meeting needs, but also being willing to share Jesus with them. And again, you don't have to just get up and say, hey, listen, by the way, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you refuse to accept the way, you're going to go to hell. There's so many different ways. You're sitting at the restaurant and your server comes. You place your order and you say, hey, listen, just a minute. In just a moment, we're going to pray and ask God to bless our meal because we got to wait. Is there anything we can pray with you about? You know what? You can use that line with anybody. You can use it with a coworker. Hey, how's things going for you today? Oh, not so good. Is there something I can pray with you about? You can get to know your neighbors. And in the course of conversation, whatever, you know, find some. Hey, is there something I can pray with you about? You can even use that on a stranger. I mean, it takes a little bit more daring. We're bold. God leads you. You see somebody, God lays on your heart and say, hey, listen. <laughs> My name's so-and-so, and I, you know, the church I go to, we, we like to pray for people, and, and I don't want to make up a scene or anything, but is there anything I can pray with you about? That's a whole lot less threatening, and, but yet it opens wide a door to share with people about Jesus as you learn how to do that. I want to challenge you to look 
at it not as a condemning thing, as a guilt thing, as a, I've got to share Jesus with three people today or I'm going to go to hell. No, your salvation is secure if you know Jesus is your Savior. But look at it as a wonderful, glorious opportunity that you can make a difference in somebody's life for Jesus Christ and maybe have a part to play in them avoiding hell. As we wrap this up today, I just want to tell you how, because I was praying, God, how can I apply this to my life? You want to say, oh, pastor, you're a pastor. Obviously, you have no trouble sharing the gospel. Can I tell you, I have no trouble sharing the gospel from behind this, uh, I almost said pulpit, this table. I have no trouble sharing the gospel within the confines of the church wall. But can I tell you, I struggle with some of the same things you do, sharing the gospel out there in the world. Because I'm human. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to share something with somebody and say, forget you. But I choose to wrestle with it. And I choose to try to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't always do it perfectly. I'm sorry if that disillusions you. I'm sorry, but I'm human like you are. But God is constantly working in my heart, and I'm finding myself having to keep coming back to God, saying, God, give me a greater burden for the lost. Help me to be more willing to step out of my comfort zone, to say things, to reach out to people. Help me to be more aware of the nudging and leading of your Holy Spirit. And that's how I want us to respond today. Let's all stand together. I challenge you to ask God to give you a greater burden for the lost. Around the world, but around you. I challenge you to pray for and give to missions, either through our church or through some other means. You know, you want to give... You know, just make sure you know where your money's going. I'd love for you to do it through the church. We can rejoice in that together. Give to other ministries that you know are making a difference for the world, for Jesus, with the gospel. Ask God for specific people that he wants you to pray for regularly and look for an opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe a family member, maybe a co-worker, somebody at school. Approach every day saying, God... I've got to go to school today. I've got to go to work today. I've got this time. But you know what? I want you to use me today. Use me and my family. Use me with my friends. Use me at school. Use me at work. But Lord, would you just use me to touch somebody's life for Jesus today? Get involved in ministry. Inside the church. Outside the church. When we as a church do things like outreaches or whatever to try to reach people, get involved. Get involved. And learn more about what you can do to share your faith more effectively. That's, that's a big list. You don't have to do it all today. You don't have to have it perfected by the end of the week. I don't have a date for you to turn in your assignment yet. But you know what? As I look out over this congregation, probably 130 people or so. I'm just guessing. If every single one of us would do that, just say, every day I want to be a little bit more effective, a little bit more open, a little bit more whatever to try to touch people for Jesus, what an impact we can make. So I know we often close the service by the worship team singing a song, you come down, we'll pray for you, all that kind of stuff. But today I just want to do something different. If God has stirred your heart today to say, I want to respond the way Pastor Tim just said, which I believe is what God is saying through me. Would you just lift up your hands and say, God, use me. God, help me. I'm scared. It's not easy. Sometimes it's frustrating. I'm afraid people are going to reject me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But God, I want to be used by you. 
So, Father, you see our hands, you see our hearts, you see our minds. And, God, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you do a work in me. God, even as a pastor, God, give me a greater burden. Why don't you guys pray with me, okay? Pray with me. Lord, give me a greater burden and a passion for people that are lost, Lord God. Father God, I pray, dear God, that you would move in my life and that you would help me to overcome my weaknesses, my insecurities, my, 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 my fears, to be more willing and open, Lord God, to share your love with others. God, help me to be more sensitive to your Holy Spirit and more responsive, Lord God, when you open a door. Lord, use me. And God, I pray for our church. I pray for our people. I pray for everybody here, everybody who's watching online or watching later or listening later. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd work in their hearts and in their lives, Lord God. Oh, Father, I pray that you would use us as a church to make a difference in our world much more this next year than ever before. And I don't mean that we're going to give more to missions. I believe we're going to do that. I don't even mean that we're just going to pray more for missions. I, I know we're going to do that. But the Lord, we personally will make a difference as you empower us and help us in the lives of others. Father, I thank you for that. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask you to hold for one more minute. For those of you that may be here today or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to lead you in a prayer. You have to pray it for yourself. You have to mean it for yourself. You're the one that needs to respond for yourself. But how you can come to know Jesus today. Would you just pray something like this? God, I come to you today and I recognize that I am a sinner. Your word says that, but Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I don't keep your, your principles and stuff. I don't even keep my own thing that I know that's right. God, please forgive me for my sins. Not because I'm good. I try to be good, but not because I can be good enough or not because I deserve it or can earn it. But God, I pray you forgive me of my sins because your word says that Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. And I want to put my trust in him. I believe that he is God and he came to earth and became man and he lived the life that I cannot live and he died a death to pay the price for my sins and he was buried he rose again to new life and he makes that new life available to me and I accept that today in Jesus name help me now Lord to live to please you fill me with your spirit live through me help me to give up sin and just go forward for you and I ask it in Jesus name amen if you prayed that today you meant it God's forgiven you of your sins and now you've got a new life to live and we'd like to help you do that so please contact us and let us know so we can help you do that can we just conclude today by doing what the people in our text were doing? They were praising Jesus because he is worthy. Can we do that? Lord, we love you today. We lift our voices, Lord. Many of us lift our hands and we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You were slain and you redeemed us, Lord God, from sin and death and hell. Hallelujah. We will join a multitude of people around the throne from every tribe, every nation. Thank you, Lord, for salvation today. God, thank you. You are worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. We give you the glory and honor today, Lord God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I pray as we leave this place that we would go with a sense that we are going on your behalf to be your ambassadors, your emissaries, your representatives in our world. And Lord, help us to share the love of Jesus through our actions and our words in every way we can. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said?
Amen. Amen. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 